You must not take pleasure in your neighbor's house. You must not take pleasure in your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And we come to 1 Corinthians 12, 31, and Paul's got this interesting idea. If, if to covet something is to earnestly desire it, Paul, speaking about the gifts of the Spirit, says, you ought to earnestly desire the great gifts. So let's start out right from the top and say that God has made us creatures of desire. And that's not wrong to desire what is good. And this is, this is the point. Because, because sin takes the good thing that God has made, God's good gift of desire, and twists it. And desiring something becomes a sin when we desire what we have no right to desire. When we give what we desire the worth and the value that we should only give to God. I feel like I'm out in the middle of nowhere. I'm not. That's better. In the Garden of Eden, if you remember the story there, Eve's um, sitting under a tree one day, uh, the serpent arrives, and, and what does it say to her? It says this whole story of, no, God doesn't say you shouldn't have it, and God knows that if you have it, then you'll be like him, and you'll know good from evil, and, and all of that thing. <clears throat> and what do we read about? But Eve, she sees that the forbidden fruit was desirable, forgiving her what she suddenly thought God should have given her in the first place. You see, sin took a desire to be like God and twisted and said, well, you should have it even though God says you shouldn't. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about envy and covetousness, covetousness, that word, and desiring what we have no right to desire. We meet here in Psalm 73, Asaph, who felt very, very envious of those who who seemed to flourish despite not loving God. Show of hands, if you're brave, are you an envious person? If if you're sometimes an envious person, put your hand up. Yeah, envious. Aren't we self-righteous people? I'm not envious. Just once or twice a day. It's not much. Mornings and afternoons. And at lunchtime. So Debbie likes her cars. The old ones. Isn't covet, coveting or envying, don't we think, if only I had that, then my life would be good. I would thrive. I would, I would, everyone would look up to me and go, wow, what a fortune. Woo! Look at that man. Look at that woman. She's driving a 1925 Chevrolet. And it's got all of its wheels. We struggle with envy. Paul struggled with envy. In Romans 7, uh, first seven or eight verses, Paul speaks about how 
when the law came and he realized that the law said, don't covet, don't, don't be envious, don't earnestly desire somebody else's stuff. Paul says, straight away the law said, don't do it. I went, ooh, actually, I do want that. Paul struggled with envy. And I want to suggest to you that, that this commandment over here, although it's the 10th commandment in the list, is perhaps one of the points where many breaches of God's law begins. James chapter 1 verse 14 says that it is when we are tempted by our own evil desires that we are dragged away and enticed. We are dragged away and enticed when what we want becomes all-surpassing. Theologian Murphy said that improper desire is the root of all evil. It can seldom be reached by human legislation, but it is open to the searcher of hearts. The intent is that which in the last resort determines the moral character of the act. See, when we're envious, I want to suggest that we are unhappy with what God has given us. We don't really trust that God loves us enough. Because if he loved us enough, he would give me what I want. Why would he give it to them instead of to me? He doesn't love me enough. And when it really takes root, envy can see us turn our backs on God. Because we want what we want no matter what it takes, no matter who we hurt, no matter what the cost, we need that in order to thrive. Our society here in the West is, is an envy-based society. If we have that product, we will be powerful. In a 1925 Chevrolet, we will have prestige. I don't even know if they make a 1925 Chevrolet. We will have beauty, we will have success, we will have happiness. Sky Jatani, who's a great author, says, whoever creates your desires ultimately controls your destiny. Jesus said, don't store up your treasures on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Envy and coveting speaks to our treasures being here on earth. We desire what somebody else has and we desire it now. Now, you and I might not covet your neighbor's wife or servants. If your neighbor's got servants, phone the police. We might not covet their wife or servants or their ox or their donkey. Maybe you do. But how about coveting their position? How about being envious of their money? Glennis is just shaking her head. No, not envious. Good. You're a, you're a paragon 
of virtue for us, Glennis. <laughs> Maybe it's the opportunities that they've had. Maybe it's what they've got. Maybe it's their car. Asaph, who wrote this Psalm 73 for us, Asaph found himself looking around him at the world and he saw the wicked prospering, which didn't fit in with how he expected God to act. God is supposed to bless those who do the right thing. Those who, who support God are supposed to be supported by God. I rub your back, you rub mine. Instead, the wicked are prospering. Those who reject God and sneer at God. But for Asaph, even though he spends a lot of time describing the lifestyle of the wicked, the problem for Asaph is not the problem of why do the wicked flourish. So much as, how come I don't get what they get? He's not concerned about their wickedness. He's concerned about their flourishing and him not flourishing. He says over here, as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping. I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Here is Asaph, a temple musician, a man of God, a worker in the church. And he says, I wish I was like those guys. I wish God would bless me. My life is dedicated to God and here I am struggling while they flourish. And in fact, he says here that, that his envy took him so close to giving up on God. What he saw was very desirable. It's kind of like the ancient Near East equivalent of lifestyles of the rich and famous. They had good health, says verse 4. Most people struggled in scarcity and starvation even. Verse 5, they didn't struggle through life at all, unlike everyone else. Verse 6, they were proud. They weren't afraid to rub how important they were in your face. And they, they happily would push the little people down into the mud so that they could stand clear. Maybe this, if, if we're totally honest with us, maybe this is one of the reasons why their lifestyle is so enviable. Because, well, because I am the most important person. And I don't mind if everyone knows that. And Asaph looks at them and goes, wow, these guys, they just, they, they just stand on top. Verse 7 says to us over there, these fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. Uh, literally there it says, their eye bulges from fat. Which is a lovely vision of their vision. They, they have all that they need, but they want more. They cause others, verses 10 to 11, to ask why God doesn't act. Why do they get away with their evil? Was Asaph envious of, of their ability to do whatever they wanted without being held accountable by God? When we look at the haves of this world, I don't want much. I just want, it to, be, I just want to be like them. Just, let's just average things out a bit. That would be fair, wouldn't it? They have a Porsche. I have a Porsche. 
I'll settle for a Ferrari. It's fine. We always want to be averaged up, though, don't we? Average me with those I'm envious of. Please don't average me with those who are envious of me. When we're envious, we're really saying to God, God, you messed up. God, you messed up. I'm your person. I'm your child, God, and and I don't have what I need to be happy. I don't have what I need to be happy. Now, quite often our envy doesn't go to this level. It's kind of like a like a, a comet blow that just glances off the atmosphere of our egos. But but sometimes it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? And if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we're saying. God, if you really loved me, you would give me what I need to be happy, to thrive. In James chapter 4, uh, we read of the church there who is just driven with envy. Here are people who are driven by the evil desires at war within you, says James. They are not content with, with what they have they want more. And James says there in chapter 4 that they lust after what they want so much that they are driven to scheme and even kill in order to get it. They don't care what it takes as long as they get what they think they should have. God, says James, is not even in the picture for them. What they want is the stuff. And maybe those who are more pious than the rest go, Oh God, Debbie has a 1925 Chevrolet and she smokes and I want a 1925 Chevrolet and I don't smoke and why does she get it when I do? Not. And of course God's response is, Well Nick, you're right. She shouldn't have it. So I'm going to take it away from her and give it. Of course God doesn't do that. You can keep the car. Even if we asked God, says James in chapter 4, we wouldn't get what we ask for because our motives are wrong. What we desire most is pleasure now because our thinking is that this is what we need to thrive. And we buy into that lie that we do whatever it takes, no matter who we hurt, because we need this. This is the, the ultimate outcome of envy. Asaph's envy saw him coming to the point. And remember, this is a man whose life is dedicated to God. He comes to the point where he says, Is it worth the bother? Look at these wicked people. They enjoy a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day. Every morning brings me pain. Here is a man who is so caught up in envy, so caught up in saying, how come they get it and I don't, that he starts looking at his life and says, well, 
Is God worth it? Really, does God actually love me? Because if he did, how come he treats me like he does? It's a lovely self-centered attitude, isn't it? Self-focused, self-glorifying. Asaph's attitude here is the attitude that comes when we take our eyes off God, when we become to compare our personal situation to the very best that the world has to offer. Asaph so almost stumbled. He knew that that there were others who probably were also envious. He knew how his speaking out would affect them, and so he, he... He tried to deal with his envy. How did he deal with his envy? He tried to rationalize it. Have a look here at verse um, 17, I think, 16. So I I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. I I struggle and I struggle and I struggle and I I, I, I want it and and I want to find a reason why they get it and I don't. I want to justify your actions, God, because frankly, they're unjustifiable. And I can't do it. But he almost stumbles. Until he goes to church. He enters God's sanctuary. He goes to worship God. And while he is there, while his focus is not on himself, he sees his perspective changed. You see, his Envious eyes were incredibly short-sighted. What he needed was God's point of view. Roy Clements says that it's only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. Verses 18 to 20, Asaph comes to realize that the things he is envying will not last, do not last. The wicked look like they are standing strong and secure and prospering forever, but he sees finally the truth that they are standing on slippery ground. They might be enjoying life now, but he realizes they will fall when God comes in judgment. He realizes, Asaph, what a fool he's been. How bitter he's been. How torn up inside he's been. How jealous he has been. How much he has been distrusting God's love. That's what it is, this bitterness inside of him. I don't trust that you love me, God. Why don't you treat me the way you should? He's questioned God's handling of his life circumstances. He's He's realized that his behavior has been unthinking. It's just been his evil desires driving him forward. He's been like an unthinking, senseless, ignorant brute. He has had no perspective whatsoever. And he comes and realizes, finally in verse 23, however I still belong to you. You hold my right hand came to realize that the thing that mattered the most wasn't the prosperity of the wicked, wasn't their wealth, wasn't their fame, wasn't their health, wasn't their 1925 Chevrolet. 
wasn't the ox or the donkey. He came to realize the thing that is all-surpassing is to be with God. In the, in the final analysis, Asaph realizes that the only thing that matters is knowing God. Yes, God might be all that we have. Asaph is, is very sorry for himself here, but he might have nothing. But if God is all that we have, he is also all that we need. He's walked in our shoes. He knows our every weakness, knows our every sorrow, knows our every pain. And one day, Jesus will return and he will welcome us into his glory and we will be with him forever. Hebrews 13 verse 5 um, speaks about this subject as well. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Why? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, this is the answer to envy and covetousness. It's not getting what we want. Because when we get what we want, we find that actually it doesn't fulfill our desires. We find that we are not thriving just because we have that. And then we stretch for something else. There's only one who can slake our thirst. If we try and find joy and meaning in this world or the things that other people have, I guarantee you, you might get it, but you will never be satisfied. It's like drawing water from a leaky well. The solution to envy is the same as the solution to sin, and it's, it's the salvation of God. It's Jesus coming to save us and saying, I am with you. And I will be with you from now through eternity. Asaph looks back from this perspective. He glimpses it. We see it clearly, the side of the cross. He glimpses it from his side of Jesus. And he sees his envy melt and quiver. Is he envious of the healthy? What's health when you will not be with God forever? If he, is he envious of the arrogant? They talk big, but God's bigger. Is following God a waste of time? Says he, as for me, how good it is to be near God. I've made him my shelter. I will tell everyone about the wonderful things that you do. Whom have I in heaven? I have you. And he comes here to the point where he has been envying all the worldly goods of the wicked. And he says in verse 25, and I wonder how many of us can honestly say this, or how many of us will say it with, with the desire to honestly say this. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. That's a fantastic saying. But do you notice where he says it? He doesn't say it at the top. 
He says it where he's gone through this whole journey of, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And he finally realizes this is a waste of time. God, I want you. I need you. Paul struggled with envy, as we said, but having met Jesus, he began to learn a secret. And he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 uh, through 13, I wasn't ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live with, well, on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. For Paul, Christ was enough. For Asaph, God was enough. These are two men who came to realize that God is the treasure above all others. We were made to be with God. Only he can satisfy our thirst and our hunger. Only he can give us life-giving water. Paul and Asaph, at a glimpse, knew that Christ knew that God is the only way to be satisfied in this life and the next. Brothers and sisters, after that sermon, I am convinced that you will not be envious this week. You will look at what others have and go, I pity you for I have greater wealth. You might envy. We go through Asaph's journey quite often. where we get self-centered, where our vision gets focused on ourselves, when we look at what others have and envy them. My brothers and sisters, may we encourage each other to look to him who is worth more than all the world. May he be our desire. May Christ be enough for us. And when we envy, may we come back to Jesus and say to him again, Lord, I almost slipped. But I know that there is no one else in heaven for me but you. And I trust you. And I want to say, Father, that I desire nothing other than you. Let's stand. Let's finish our service with a song. Christ is enough for me. You've become for us wisdom, righteousness, our salvation, our holiness. All that we need is found in you.